Hello and welcome to ACR Radio, where in this episode we're going to be talking with Tansy E. Hoskins, she, her, a Marxist journalist, and I'm Roan Fortune Vedam. At the opening of your book, you have the transgender model, uh, Andrea Padrick, who does the foreword, and she quotes the revolutionary Marxist Leon Trotsky on how art in a post-capitalist society will, quote, give rise to new styles, will vitally engross all and everybody. He accounts that in this future, the average human type will rise to the heights of Aristotle, a Goethe or a Marx, and above this ridge, new peaks will rise. This is also quoted in your text. And I was really interested in how this vision relates to your book and to fashion beyond the present moment. Yeah, thank you. Well, thanks, Rowan. It's really wonderful to be here and to see you again and have a, you know, have a chat about the book and stuff. Yeah, so I, I love this quote. I was really pleased when Andrea put it in her introduction as well. Just to say, like, she is amazing and it was such a dream come true for her to have her write the foreword I literally had like a short list of one person who I wanted to do the foreword um you know she's an amazing revolutionary socialist and when the first time we had a chat like she was re-reading or rereading the history of the Russian revolution really really exciting to meet someone who was so on top of the fashion industry and also such a hardcore revolutionary as well. So, um, yeah, I, I love that quote. It really speaks for me. It speaks to why I'm still interested in the fashion industry and why I'm still interested in writing and thinking about this industry, which is pretty much a horrible industry. But to me, it speaks for the hope of how the industry could be and it would be a completely different a completely unrecognizable industry and we you know we don't know we don't know what clothing would look like if we got to a sort you know point of revolution or a kind of post-revolutionary society but I think what we can say is that actually democratized design we would see an explosion of human creativity which would surpass anything we've seen in in human history you know if we if we really democratized the access to our common cultural heritage and took away these ridiculous laws that capitalism puts in place you know like like uh, gendered stuff around fashion so pink is for girls and blue is for boys and dresses for, for girls and etc cetera, etc cetera. you know and, and all the racialized sort of blocks and barriers that there are around fashion and and of course like this issue of, of class which is what propels the fashion industry so you know we take all of that away and actually let people express themselves uh, and express you know the bits of their personality that they're excited about uh, and yeah I think above this bridge new peaks would truly rise. Absolutely I mean it reminds me a lot of of another quote from Marx in in the German ideology where he talks about the liberating capacity of essentially pursuing our species essence and uh, mm. you know, he, he talks about not being confined to our roles so I guess that's that's kind of part and parcel of democratizing something like design, actually giving a huge number of people access to it through additional time, through greater resources. Yeah. 
Yeah, and not yeah, like you said, not pigeonholing people, not being like, oh well, you are a you are a fashion designer because you are a white European who went to this school, and you are a garment worker because you know you're a Bangladeshi woman who went to the, you know who went to this like high school or whatever. Uh, you know, we completely shred all of that, rip it all up. Uh, it'd be it'd be way more exciting and fair, obviously. A, a key concept in in terms of how you analyze fashion as it is, as, as distinctly not democratic, is, is the notion of fast fashion. And I'm, I'm assuming that that's familiar to quite a lot of people, perhaps not everybody. But how does this concept of fast fashion conceal workers' conditions? And, and how does it relate to consumers? Because I, I see it throughout the book very much related to both working conditions and consumers but at different levels yeah so so fast fashion is like is like a bit of a buzzword I mean I am I am a little bit wary of parceling off like high street fashion uh, and saying that this is the really bad bit and that, that everything else is fine I think you know it's really important to remember that so-called luxury fashion nine times out of ten what they're selling is tat like it's it's rubbish you know people people aren't going and buying like couture or they're not going and buying the luggage that they make and stuff like that they're going and buying lipstick sunglasses belts t-shirts with a stupid logo on it etc cetera, etc cetera. like most of it most of what passes as luxury fashion and most of where the profits come from is is just rubbish perfume and so on but so fast fashion is is, is kind is like a business model basically it's it's like pile it high sell it cheap push the production costs down and down and down so slash the wages as much as possible push the environmental regulations like out the way you know go to the countries and and, and locations where you can just circumvent those in the book i actually talk about this thing that i've called coined like a slash fashion because i think we've we've kind of gone you know there's luxury there's fast fashion but there is also now something that i think is eclipsing fast fashion which is slash fashion which is this like um hyper cheap primarily online so made in really bad conditions so conditions that are even more difficult to track uh where the where the companies don't have like don't have shops they've just got websites uh, and you know and where like literally thousands of different items are being added uh, like week after week and you know every every so often they have a very you know a sale that attracts a lot of attention where you'll get you'd like one pound bikinis and uh, and two pound dresses and stuff like that so yeah so we're in a we are in a period of hyper production and all of it is you know is is wrapped up and portrayed in like you know beautiful silk bows so everything looks perfect and behind the scenes we have this we have the exploitation of people and planet and animals uh, and just yeah terrible situation what you just said about sort of online fashion it reminds me of of the rise of and it's almost this kind of web 2.0 into fashion sort of design your own t-shirt which a lot of online brands i know use as a kind of way of earning sort of money on the side of advertisements and such I guess that that kind of links to to some of your criticism and skepticism about the role of the internet in general in terms of democratizing fashion and specifically relate that to later on in the book to the role of influencers and bloggers and and so on which I'll definitely pick up on oh yeah the big topic (laughs) Mm. 
yeah, it's I, I'm I'm very interested in in media critiques, and I think mm-hmm. I think many of our listeners are as well. What you just mentioned, though, and which also connects because you were sort of critiquing the aesthetics, even of you know so-called high fashion or or luxury fashion, and and you have quite a a, a line of critique throughout the book of the kinds of aesthetic range and variety that the fashion industry today and arguably throughout the modern world really offers up to consumers and and to humanity as a whole and that extends even to the relationship between fashion and the regulation of bodies and and how this stymies our imagination and and flattens tastes because it's a a relationship that goes back and forth between what people want and and what Mm. they're offered Mm. Uh, and I was wondering if you could could speak a little on on that flattening and, and how that actually occurs in in the fashion industry. Yeah, gosh, a lot of this conversation, I have to be honest with you, is reminding me of our mutual friend, Neil Faulkner, who passed away. Uh, he was like he was very much my mentor on this book. And there's just so much of it that I talk to him about and. God, I really miss I miss Neil so much. And this is one of the things that I specifically remember talking to him about. And it's about the the milieu that an artist gets caught up in and how that starts to dictate what they're producing. And so if somebody, you know, if, if a fashion designer is courting the interest of a, a select group of people, then they are going to start tailoring what they're creating to that set of tastes and I think we see that quite clearly with the fashion industry you know and and we always have done and I and you know most of the fashion industry especially the high end caters to you know the sort of global bourgeoisie the globe you know the one percent who are not known for their remarkable taste so a lot of it is like is very boring I mean we're talking you know at the moment we're talking about families of Russian oligarchs, you know, or uh, uh, rich Americans in, in Miami or God, the British upper classes, like no, these, you know, not, not style icons in, in any way, shape or form. So yeah. So, so fashion does get flattened. And I think that's why fashion is way more interesting when, when you go down to like, like the Vauxhall Tavern or like queer clubs and, and as you know, dance music venues, hip hop clubs, like just, you know, the kids on the night buses and stuff are often like way more interesting than what we're seeing down the catwalk. And I actually, I was thinking funny enough about this uh, yesterday when I was looking at the Oscars. I mean, did you did you check out the Oscars catwalk at all? Or the no. sorry, red carpet? Uh, there was a couple of dresses and outfits that I was like, oh, that, you know, that's quite cool. And some people were messing around a little bit with the with the rules. But I was like, gosh, this is like, this is quite, this is boring, actually. But it's very predictable. You know, every now and again, like the red carpet gets shaken up. You know, you, you get Billy Porter in a gown or AOC goes on with tax the rich and stuff. Yeah, that's like most of the time it's it's quite mundane. Uh, mm. You know, don't like, please, you know, don't everybody like hate me for saying that. But like, I think we could do so much, you know, so much better than this. I like your examples because I think within celebrity culture, there are sometimes odd organic connections to stuff going on outside. I mean, AOC is is obviously a complicated case because she's a politician who 
has some grassroots origins and, and connections but it does it does seem that from some of the examples uh, it, it tends to be younger celebrities and and people like that who would actually innovate in that context and I mean I love I don't know what you I mean I loved what she did I loved that stunt that dress you know mm. at the Met Gala I think it was so perfectly positioned and spiky and and yeah brilliant and and yeah it seemed for a while like things might get a bit more interesting stylistically but it seems to have like dampened down again which is a bit of a shame yeah more like more protest fashion more like overtly queer interesting fashion is you know would be would be would be much more interesting I mean, I, I'm always careful to to not overuse the word dialectical but there seems to be a kind of back and forth <laughs> approach there where yeah sort of absence of originality and and, and newness sort of has its own internal demand for it where there's sort of a because I think a lot of what comes out in your book about how the fashion industry works is it's essentially parasitical on on um tastes uh that come from a larger number of people that it fundamentally depends upon the originality and artistry and aesthetic interests of the people that it Mm. also simultaneously excludes and and doesn't consult in in its consumption and and its uh, production yeah I mean fashion is a is a vampire you know yeah I mean it both in terms of of labor and of, of like natural resources and of and, and of culture like the job is literally to to go out there and get like quote unquote in, inspired which you know basically so, yeah taking taking what you see and, and and repurposing it a really strong uh, current throughout the book is is its internationalism which is only appropriate for for a marxist book on fashion but you do go into and i think some of the most harrowing sections and i remember uh, a little bit working with faulkner on 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 other books that in doing so often the most sort of excruciating details that you would sort of pick up on of working with Marxists in general is is the the level of exploitation that occurs out there and the 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 kinds of things that these industries do and the challenge of not seeing that through kind of a moralistic even slightly apocalyptic lenses when you look at the environmental destruction that a lot of this uh, reaps I was wondering if you could sort of talk a little bit about that. I mean, you've mentioned uh, Bangladesh, and and that comes up quite a lot in in your previous work on footwear and 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 shoes. And obviously, there's more than a slight crossover between fashion and uh, and the shoe yeah. industry. But but I was wondering if you could uh, discuss that international impact, the and and the exploitative relationship between the fashion industry. And, and places that have previously been termed the third world and uh, underdeveloped co- economies. There's a reason why, you know, we're like, uh, we're both sitting here in Britain, right? Like, there's a reason why clothes that are in British wardrobes are made in Bangladesh, India, Pakistan. The corporations at the moment are following those same colonial pathways uh, that the British Empire stamped out across the world this is this is it's literally ne- like neo-colonialism is what is what we have uh with the fashion industry and it's incredibly stark you know the exploitation that goes on within the fashion industry and and with workers is incredibly gendered so in bangladesh approximately like 80% of the, of 
garment workers are are women. This is very uh, obviously a very racialized uh, exploitation, whereby Global North corporations are headed to the Global South and exploiting people in uh, in Asia, in in South Asia, at North Africa. Uh, Eastern Europe a bit now yeah so all, all around well Latin America and yes and so so and a lot of the time the workers are also like migrant workers there's a lot of like internal migration so rural communities who are no longer able to exist as like farmers or fishers and have to move into the towns and find working garment factories and yeah and and then and then also obviously but needs to be said like this is the exploitation of the global working classes as well. This is, you know, I literally see fashion as like as kind of an excuse for the rich to just exploit the poor. And there's a, a quote that, you know, that I've been thinking about again, like from like from 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 Marx. You definitely know it. But, you know, when he says like what he produces for himself is not the silk that he weaves, not the gold that he draws up the mining shaft and not the palace that he builds. What he produces for himself is wages and the silk, the gold and the palace are resolved for him into a certain quantity of necessaries for life, perhaps into a cotton jacket, into copper coins and into a basement dwelling. Marx was writing that, you know, a couple of hundred years ago, but this is exactly what happens in, in the fashion industry and in these fashion factories. You have women sat there six days a week, 10 hours a day, making these like, you know, the equivalent of a silk jacket and yet and then earning, you know, copper coins for doing so and, and not having any stake in what they're making. And, and all of the profits are coming either up to the top of society in, for example, Bangladesh, but primarily just up out of Bangladesh and over into the coffers in Europe and North America uh, and so on. It's a very, very stark and 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 very useful example of exploitation, I think. That really cuts to the heart of so much of what makes the book quite powerful. And I think it's that use of these analytical tools that the tradition of Marxism and and of investigative journalist work and, and of the general tradition of interrogating these kinds of sources really gives to us. And I'm thinking a lot about how you, and you've kind of already mentioned sort of going beneath appearances, which is, of course, the language of Hegel, which Marx gets. And I, I love Hegelese. I'm a bit addicted to it sometimes. <laughs> but but in going beneath the surfaces and, and, and sort of going after essences, to use Marx's terms, you, you use really some quite hefty concepts and I think some quite easy to comprehend ways. I think you, you do a really good job of explaining how something like exploitation actually works. You know, there's there's a good understanding, I think, in, in this book of, and, and a good conveying in this book of the idea of the way in which labour power is used to create commodities and the way in which that actually results in exploitation, which I just think is such a, a powerful idea to convey to people, because I think often in grasping that they can see very directly the way in which they're ensnared in this process of exploitation and even as consumers how how they participate in it with a certain degree of inevitability i think this connects directly to your notion of of democracy and why the fashion industry not as a, a choice or as a kind of whim of the boss class but as as a as an inevitable feature of the kind of political economy that we have. 
can only really make a pretense of being democratic. Why, why all of these aspirations of democracy that sometimes do admittedly come from good places uh, can never really go anywhere or culminate in anything. And and similarly, why then it can't really, the fashion industry cannot really make good on its claims to represent a diversity of humanity. And and this kind of, I guess, is part of the myth-making of the fashion industry, which is a, a curious kind of myth-making because it's a very naive one. Marx was also very keen to point out that the capitalist class was never very aware of its own system. It was never very <laughs> good at grasping how, how capitalism itself worked. And I was wondering if you could go through some of these myths of the fashion industry and the myths that I think so many of us, even even Marxists, can very easily get ensnared to in when it comes to thinking about fashion. It's really important to say, first of all, that there is no democracy in the fashion industry. And yeah, this question of, of pseudo-democracy is, is really, really interesting because it is absolutely rife in the fashion industry. Also in kind of fashion activism and uh, it, like, it, it, honestly, if I had like if I had a, a copper coin um, for every time somebody said, you know, that we could, you know, if you just shop differently, that we could like fix the world or, you know, or end work, end exploitation or, you know, end climate change just by shopping differently. I, I would have a, a mountain of, of copper coins. Yeah, and it's it, it's it's really it's a really distracting argument. It's a really unhelpful argument, and I, I think it very much like obscures the reality of, of what's going on and leads people down really unhelpful paths. Like you can get really lost in a kind of pseudo activism, just trying to sort of preaching at people to to like shop differently. And and like that's not to say that I don't think consumer activism has no place. Like I think obviously. Obviously, I think it's it's important to buy the most ethical thing that that you can afford to buy, and and I'm I am in no doubt at all that in order to solve the question of climate change, our, our lives here in the global north have to radically alter. Like I've no problem with that, but when those kind of arguments like shop differently to save the world supplant internationalism and supporting workers struggles and you know building trade unions uh, trying to get land defenders out of prison and, and all this kind of thing then it's just it's just really yeah it's just really unhelpful and then you know you sort of you've mentioned like the, the question of I guess like exploitation at the point of consumption as well and I think yeah that's that's something that's rife in the fashion industry it's a it's a really painful industry I think we we, you know, we we need to sort of constantly recognise that it is really exploitative for the people who are supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, sort of benefiting uh, from it. So like us, you know, us consumers in, in, in the global north, there's an awful lot of pain, I think, that comes with being told that you're not good enough and that your your body and your skin and your hair and your shape and your everything, you know, everything about all of us is not good enough. But if we just shop a bit more, you know, maybe we can, you know, we can and become good enough. It's incredibly painful. Our, our consumption is out of control and this is like destroying the planet around us, you know, chopping down rainforests to make shoes, rivers biologically dead to get new bits of clothing like no it's not it's not working it's not worth it i'm actually really interested in in this notion of the consumer because i think that's really critical and i think you tease out really well in your answer the ways in which consumption can become a bit of a a bugbear and a bit of a, a difficulty to think past especially when it comes to 
the moralism and and the needs to properly be able to judge the world i guess to be able to change it which i think is is a is a difficult line to follow and when you you raise consumption in that way i think you you bring up to a degree that kind of utopianism that that we began with uh, the kind of utopianism that imagines consuming in different ways that's how we traverse that idea of the individual's responsibility as and against models of solidarity and shared responsibility that, that you mentioned. And I think that's a very powerful way of thinking and a very powerful model, because as you say, to deal with the ecological catastrophe that we face is going to require not just being able to pass out the the different degrees of complicity of, of so-and-so or just you know, seizing as much as possible for the working class and, and the models of productivism that you, your book definitely doesn't uh, mm-hmm. adhere to. But yeah, I'd, I'd be very interested in in hearing uh, more about the role of consumption. I, know, I gather that there's been massive increases in consumption, not just in the global north, but elsewhere, where still within, you know, the range of huge inequalities, there are now burgeoning consumer markets everywhere and the strain that that must place on the the fashion industry in terms of those being exploited by it yeah I mean and it's really happening like right across the sector I mean this is why I try not to divide like quote unquote luxury fashion like high-end fashion from high street fashion uh like luxury fashion had some you know had some record-breaking days during the pandemic you know luxury brands are are, you know are amongst some of the biggest wealthiest brands uh, on the planet so you know when we talk about like increased consumption it's not you know teenage girls shopping at Primark that are you know that are the primary problem here it's people you know who are shopping at the Chanel boutique and have like private jets and multiple houses and go on holidays and fly around everywhere and uh, have huge rates of consumption there's always this weird idea that people who shop luxury shop less it's like oh just buy you know just buy better (laughs) you know is it another weird myth sort of frugality of the middle classes Sorry, yeah, or the more, or the more, like the fruit, sort of supposed frugality of like the one percent mm. as well that you you know, that, yeah. Whereas the, you know, their carbon footprint outstrips strange displays of wealth. But I think that's that's perhaps not entirely new in in the history of class society. That there have always been different ways of of demonstrating wealth. But I do think a lot about that stripped down model of fashion, which is actually quite still expensive. I remember an internet meme, if that's not a bit frivolous, <laughs> of like how you would put together Homer Simpson's clothes sets, basically just using sort of high-end fashion parallels and the eventual, mm. you know, the eventual clothes come to, you know, six, seven hundred pounds for a t-shirt, et cetera, et cetera. And then I think about how people like Mark Zuckerberg and that kind of tech CEO dresses. And I mean, those those clothes aren't actually as as cheap as people might imagine yeah stealth wealth yeah exactly (laughs) and I think there's yeah I think there's a lot of naivety about how wealth is displayed and and who displays wealth in in what ways and you know I think the tastes of uh, a lot of people are who are, haven't got a lot of wealth can be more ostentatious can be and and that's for good reasons that's for good 
material reasons and it's good for good aesthetic reasons there's there's nothing wrong with color and yeah fanciful design I think definitely yeah definitely yeah. and I mean like just to add something there I mean there's like there's a there's a really dark unpleasant aspect to the sort of minimal like you know minimalism sort of promotion within within fashion which is like it, it heavily racialized so you know if you take someone like Coco Chanel uh, who was literally a card carrying like Nazi, you know, and, and her like the aesthetic that she pushed. So very uniform, like very, I mean, now, yeah, now we just, you just sort of think of it as like very sort of like white French pared down kind of thing. And it's a total rejection of color, of pattern, of flamboyance, any culture that doesn't like fit within those tiny, very, like very boring uh, norms. So yeah, I think we have to, we have to be super aware, aware of that. And like what, what the, like, what's the ideology behind like a lot of these trends as well, because a lot of it ain't good. <laughs> Some of the sort of most interesting historical accounts in the book did look at the connections between fascism and Nazism and the fashion industry. And it's entirely obvious in many ways, but perhaps obscured history of entrenchment with European authoritarianism, with authoritarianism mm. elsewhere, and with just general complicity to to models of, of state racism, of that kind of European supremacist ideology and, and, and racialist ideology. And I think a lot about, I mean, I mentioned a sort of tech billionaire, and I'm obviously not talking about Zuckerberg, the tech world itself also has that kind of entrenchment in the history of European authoritarianism too, and its various complicities. And, and a lot of that comes down to just, again, that base need to constantly increase the rate of exploitation and, and profitability and mm. to pursue labour and to control labour as, mm. as much as possible. I think a lot of, of this book does a great job of really accounting for how that kind of control creates and I think there's a particular arena where you do uh, a, a wonderful job of exposing that and it's probably an arena where most people do assume that there's levels of of exploitative control but that's the sort of horrors of the world of of modeling and, ah. and the contradictions between the demands made by models uh, for representation and how these contradictions are overcome. I think what's really good about how you tease out this very dark world is is the way in which you still invest models themselves with a sense of workers' agency and with how they actually negotiate their own exploitation and negotiate their own position and the limitations placed upon them in that respect, I was really enamored with the sort of mention of a model union or a modeling <laughs> union. I thought that was uh, that was quite fantastic. I'd be really interested in hearing more about sort of the world of modeling and 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 how that relates to contemporary fashion. There is there's the model models union in in the in the UK, uh, which is part of um, Equity, the Equity Union, and yeah, definitely definitely worth checking out and in the uh, US they have the model alliance uh, which is very 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 proactive uh, and and um, you know and and really quite an incredible organization founded by models and and, in, and being led by models still and you know they campaign on on so many varied things so they've been very successful in getting this piece of legislation called the Adult Survivors Act in brought into um, 
into law in in New York, which which basically meant means that there's like a year's window where any people who have been like sexually abused can bring a retroactive civil lawsuit uh, for one year in in New York, and that that's like happening um, at the moment. And well, a, um, a lot of these the members of the the Model Alliance. Uh, one of the members, sorry, is um, Amber um, Gutierrez, who is a, a model. Uh, and she was one of the people, she's incredibly brave. She's basically one of the central people who brought down Harvey Weinstein. She was one of the people that he, you know, that he like attacked uh, and and she managed to get a, rec- a recording um, like of, of something that happened. And um, yeah, and, and she's a big part of the, the Model Alliance. So yeah, the, so they do stuff around that. They do stuff on like child, like child labor, uh, and then even like things that might just seem, I don't know, obvious, but like having a changing room when you go to work as if you're a model. So you don't have to get changed in front of a room full of people or, you know, or making sure that um, you get a proper wage uh, and making sure that you are paid on time. And really, you know, models have such interesting stories. You know, they'll say like, you know, it looks like my job is really glamorous, but actually I'm being paid less than the value of the clothes that I'm wearing. Um, you know, or sometimes you you will they'll be paid in clothes, which is like you know you can't pay your rent with like with a you know a handbag or whatever. So yeah, it's it's a really it's a really interesting uh, it's a really interesting industry. It's a, a highly exploitative industry and a very global industry. Yeah, it's quite scary when you sort of look at the statistics and you know most of the modeling industry are like very young women who are overseas and away you know away from their families and their their support networks um and it's really little wonder that there has just been uh you know court case after court case uh, and you know an expose after expose of like modeling agents the bosses of model agencies uh you know photographers uh, and 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 so on who are now thankfully like slowly pe- you know being brought to justice but it's um yeah it's it's a very exploitative industry but it's a very active industry as well i mean it's it's fantastic to hear of i think any kind of worker organizing like that and especially where there's been uh, a long history of systemic exploitation and abuse in in the way that I think a lot of performing roles generally suffer from. I think you know sometimes Marxists, but even many non-Marxists, I think get confused about the the difference between productive and unproductive labor and the relations of both categories to the category of a of a worker. And and in in that way, Marx was just profoundly clear that the unproductive work, that la- the work that didn't produce commodities, is still work, is still contributing to the economy in all kinds of important ways. You know, be that through social reproduction, be that through selling, advertising, etc. Mm. And and yeah, I think you know, there's obviously some unique vulnerabilities that workers in in performing arts and. You know, thinking of actors, for example, in in this respect, will suffer from, and perhaps a degree of misunderstanding because of the role of very high paid, very top end actors, the sort of mega celebrity figures, uh, who are obviously not representative of of that kind of work at all. And I imagine yeah. similarly with sort of modelling celebrity shows, with the kind of uh, especially the rise of 
a lot of these sort of semi-reality television shows and kind of thinking like modeling competition shows for example mm -hmm. um that sort of dominate uh now and not even obviously saying that those women aren't being exploited and in all kinds of cruel ways and, and demeaned in all kinds of ways but obviously there's a a, a glamorization of, of how it actually works that there probably has been for a very long time you know and, and like uh andrea uh in the in the foreword you know she was like she was a super like she's a su i mean she is a supermodel you know and has like you know done all the runways and then the um you know magazine covers and stuff but you know, she says in the foreword to the book that she's working in a restaurant. You know, mm -hmm. like that, like it's there's a there's an illusion of wealth and an illusion of, of of like great wealth and great opportunity, and that you know you make it as a model and like hey presto, you're you know you're Cinderella. You know, yeah. But that's just yeah, it's just not the case. And it's yeah, it's it's people kind of competing for the opportunity to have to have that. Uh, rather than sort of yeah competing for any kind of anything really solid. Andrea's Fischek's opening of your book was was a really good way of exploring some of those themes and exploring I think the complexities of the harms of fashion on, on different kinds of people and, and and in the way that it sort of goes all the way down and I think yeah. that putting aside the absolutely fantastic opening quotes is uh, <laughs> a really good choice but I was interested in from the idea of how people are represented and, and going back into media which is of course your own area as a, as a journalist and how you're really really critical of the relationship that the media and, and journalists generally have with the fashion industry and particularly of fashion journalism and the complicity in advertising and the way that fashion companies involving themselves in kind of stealth advertising I guess you mentioned the role of the advertorial and I still remember when I first saw that portmanteau in a magazine and yeah. it's slightly horrifying I mean a lot of portmanteaus are slightly horrifying yeah. I, I find but you know you're, you're also at the same time completely unpersuaded by the democratizing world of the internet we've already mentioned that smartphones social media blogging and influencers have become a really big factor in in the fashion industry I, i've heard stories of how people are kind of brought into that um and you go into quite a lot of depth in, into how that process takes place through gifts and and through all kinds of of manipulations and obviously just mercurial enticement could you elucidate a little on the failings of, of the media both legacy and new and I was wondering if you also have any ideas on how journalists can navigate this arena with with integrity and in ways that are actually useful if if indeed there's actually a space within mm. a lot of the media for that I suppose I should say that I think I think the coverage of fashion as an industry has grown up considerably in 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 the last 10 years within the la within the last 10 years it was completely unfit for purpose um it was an it, you know it was an industry without cr criticism without proper coverage uh, you know there were a few lone voices who were trying to cover like environmentalism and, and labor rights within the fashion industry but the rest of the media was sycophantic infantilizing just like yeah just basically advertising like the, like doing the brand's jobs uh for them um i think now there is a space 
for journalists who want to cover the fashion industry and want to cover it from a labor rights perspective uh, and from an environmental perspective I think that's what people want a lot more of you know people are like people aren't being fooled by by like by the set like same old kind of business as usual anymore so publications that are having to change um, I think if people want to well yeah want to get involved in that work I guess like yeah the internationalism is the most important uh, you don't want to be the person causing more harm than good at the very minimum kind of following workers rights organizations and trade unions in in the global south and making sure you are connected to organizations in in the global north and the global south who are working in this in in this area is is really really important um yeah and then and then I think being you know kind of like just like being creative about it like there isn't there isn't any one way to do you know, to do this kind of work and I definitely think it you know it does take it takes everybody to do it so you know it's kind of what like bringing your skills uh, to to the table and but listening I think li- listening to 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 garment workers and is 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 really important and quite an underrated not even virtue an underrated practice uh, still within like within fashion journalism and yeah but yeah so this was like gosh this was this was a chapter that i had to like completely rewrite since like stitched up came out it's um you know like instagram when i did stitched up like instagram wasn't even really like a thing so yeah so much has happened you know we've had like the series around like surveillance capitalism and and the realities of of surveillance capitalism uh, you know, Professor uh, Shohoshana Zuboff's work on that. And uh, and within the book, you know, I did a little like a little experiment uh, around like third party trackers and, and fashion news sites where I, I basically uh, I went round and I, I used like I used a bit of software that tracks how many third party trackers each website is putting onto your computer. Uh, and I went round the fashion sites and um, and then for comparison, I went round just the sort of general news sites. And yeah, the general news sites, like everybody's putting these third party trackers on your, on you, on your, you know, on your browser. Like everybody is following you and figuring out what you're doing and constructing a profile for you that they can then sell on. Uh, to the highest bidder like it's incredibly creepy but what I found is that the fashion sites were putting way more like way more third-party trackers uh, on and I think that's like that's an important thing to recognize you know going back to the sort of this question again of like uh, exploitation at the point of consumption and and fashion being quite a punishing um, industry for people and and there is an awful lot of blame put on to the consumers of fashion you know our our, our teenage girls who are shopping at Primark and stuff these these terrible villains (laughs) um like but but you know we have to understand that like if they have they you know they have they might have an interest in the fashion industry so they're going on these sites they're being bombarded with all these third-party trackers which are not only collecting their data but are then you know, blasting them with adverts and the same adverts, which are, you know, designed tap into the really vulnerable bits of your brain uh, and and to get a response out of you. So, you know, I mean, you know, we are like we are each of us. We're just little little mice, aren't we, who are being experimented on. Uh, and it's kind of like it's not that much of a shock if 
that people are going and shopping when they're being told 24 seven that they must yeah that they must go and shop uh so it's like yeah it's a vicious a vicious circle and then there's one theory in the book which was one of the most interesting for me to to look at and this is uh, the work of professor Jodie dean and her theory of around like communicative capitalism um and this was quite a light bulb moment for me you know when you're experiencing something in the real world and you you know it's happening, and then like you find you know a, a piece of theory that that actually like explains uh, what's going on. And she po- both poses and answers the question like why when we are in a more like networked, more vocal society than ever before. You know when we're being told that we can like tweet and Instagram and directly communicate with brands. Uh, and and so on and re- you know tell them what we really think and blah 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 like why is thing why is everything getting worse um, and you know and this is a question that I've I've been thinking about uh, a lot you know why when we're supposed to be like more communicative and there's you know there's more capacity for communication uh, like why is yeah why why is everything worse <laughs> than, than it was before yeah she I mean she has like she does some really interesting work around that. And and she talks about basically like the commodification of transparency and participation and discussion and and how that has now like just been commodified uh, by like by the Internet. Uh, But also she talks about this idea of like fetishizing technology uh, and, and how we're, you know, we sort of think that technology is going to do the job of changing the world for us. You know, so so it's enough just to like tweet or post on Instagram and that that will miraculously somehow like do something. And, you know, and how the danger is, is that we supplant like a street based kind of collective activism for this kind of like fetishized, like technology, technological communication that I found really, really interesting. You know, that's not to say that like being connected online isn't incredibly important and and obviously you know we've got like we've got a generation of Mm. um not just young people but of people who are able to access information about you know from like people who look or feel or think like them uh which they you know you would never norm you know you never like Mm. when I was growing up like that that wasn't a possibility so I'm you know it so it's important but again as has has been said um it's it's possible to imagine the internet without the surveillance but it's not possible to imagine the surveillance without the internet you know we could we could have all of these wonderful things we could have all this connectivity we don't have to be surveilled and um all all the time in in terms of why things getting worse it kind of seems like the internet and you know and all these social media is there to connect us but really like you know it does Mm. the people who benefit most first of all you know the brands like they have the the biggest reach on on social media and are able to like cover everything up and make everything look like it's fine um Mm. but you know the real winners at the end of the day is you know it's your zuckerbergs your elon musks you know your tiktok shareholders Mm. none of it is designed to actually help us change change things that's entirely right i mean i'm quite a critic of uh web 2.0 i mean i didn't even grow up with it and like like some people slightly younger than me and i know you know plenty of them have had quite harrowing experiences being in that forum and i guess they're the kind of 
consumer that you're talking about when you sort of talk about younger people going to Primark who are victims of this kind of social media harassment, the kind of panopticon of Web 2.0. You know, the, the kind of really good Marxist critique of technology, which is that it's it's catered to the designs and the desires and the needs of the society that produces it. And so, you know, we are shaped by technology, we shape technology, there's this kind of two-way agency, but the the real conditions of our society are also very, very highly present there, and there's how the internet's been monetized. I have a degree of wistful nostalgia for Web 1.0 and those <laughs> days when everyone had terrible HTML websites that would just yeah. <laughs> blare music at you when you were least expecting them to. Um, <laughs> But I, I gather there's a, a little bit of a Gen Z renaissance in, in those kinds of websites, which I find quite uh, cute. I don't think it'll save the internet, but it's quite um, it's quite nice to think about. But I think I think you're absolutely right about the sort of darker side of this, and I think that connects to this kind of consumer because one of the key critical differences between consumers and producers is that producers have a direct way to come together and no matter what kind of exploitation they face and no matter the horrors of uh, conditions they can unify and change their conditions whereas I think the mechanisms for that in consumption are often hard to see and I think where you do see people coming together in consumer conglomerates can often be um, itself quite quite dark. I mean, I think of sort of Gamergate, which was very much a sort of consumer rights thing in the gaming industry, a, an absolutely horrifying uh, and deeply misogynistic movement, mm. somewhat aimed at, uh, at women game journalists yeah. uh, and their influence on, on gaming uh, or alleged influence on gaming. Um, yeah. And and yeah, I, I'd be really interested in in sort of uh, hearing about about that side of of consumers and and I think also um, this notion of communicative capitalism and and how that relates to the the idea of the internet as an expression of I guess our you know to use a, a sort of heady concept of our modern alienation of our disconnect from each other because mm. I think as much as we communicate. We communicate in very disconnected and disconnecting ways. And I think the kind of movements that have arisen out of the internet are demonstrative of that disconnection and that lack of communication in certain respects. I think it's interesting to look at the research that has been done by Facebook and into Instagram themselves, um, you know, where they themselves have found that their you know that their products are incredibly like harmful and and dangerous and and can lead to you know self-hatred self-harm uh, and and in ex- some extreme and tragic cases like e- even like sort of suicide uh, by by um by people and uh, specifically like young women mm-hmm. um and i think it is an incredibly alienating and and horrible experience i mean i myself like left instagram because i just like uh, i found it had such a poor effect on my like mental and, and emotional health i think at a, at a basic level you know on like instagram is alienating because you are reduced down to a set of a few sets of numbers right so you are reduced down like your worth is reduced down to how many followers do you have and how many likes does your post get um 
and 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 that can sort of become like the sum total of your uh, of your experience and it's it's very it's very alienating it's very very destructive um you know what i realized uh, you know I, I really liked the um what was that that documentary the social the social dilemma was it called um mm. yeah w- where which really helped me to understand that even were i to become quote unquote like a success on on Instagram if I were to become an influencer on Instagram like all I would really all I would be doing is basically convincing lots of other people to spend more time on Instagram in some kind of weird like pyramid scheme Hmm. Um, you know and 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 so I you know I just I don't want to convince all these people to spend more time on an app which is now medically proven to be bad for your mental health Uh, and you know and especially for me like a lot of the people who engage with my work are young women and I was yeah this is this is not good uh, at all and I think just going back to like Jodie Dean's work you know in this idea of like communicative capitalism um like she says that the that you know in terms of this question of like why are things getting worse like it's she's very clear it's not because people care less like I actually think that you know within the within fashion people probably care more than ever before like who's making their clothes and and where it's coming from but she says that you know it's about the forms of our involvement uh, being captured in ways that reinforce the system rather than undermine it and and so you know she's saying that like you there's loads of rhetoric like about about the internet and and democracy uh but actually this rhetoric is is strengthening the hold of capitalism on our like these networked um societies um and i mean like personally i'm neither i'm neither like a utopian sort of internet utopian you know or like internet dystopian it's like yeah I, I think the internet is not going to save us online activism is not like the be all and end all but it is also it's very useful in being able to communicate so easily with people all around the world uh particularly with yeah with an industry like this but um yeah it's a massive a massive issue I don't know where it's going to yeah what's going to happen I mean I'm like we're both on Mastodon now right like mm-hmm. I'm finding that incredibly refreshing just as as an experience it's so much better like not having adverts and not having an algorithm Mm. it's Mm. like it's it's quite extraordinary it it is a little like going back in time i think particularly to that hybrid age where the internet had kind of aspects of web 2.0 and aspects of what it used to be and and i mean myspace was certainly um (laughs) not unproblematic in various (laughs) ways but and, and in certain respects could be said to have brought the current epoch of, of Facebook and Twitter, et cetera, into being. But I, I did find it a lot less hostile, a lot less of an alienated environment, just because of the creativity that people could mm. invest into it. And the fact that it wasn't, or at least it didn't feel as owned by by these sort of advertisements and these brands and, and the way that people very easily get sucked into, I think, not just working for brands but making themselves into brands totally yeah totally totally and I I mean I like I just I love being on Mastodon I it feels it feels a little bit defiant to be on there as well like I've never been particularly like good at social media and stuff so I've always had a yeah difficult Mm. relationship with it but 
now I am spending quite a lot of time on Mastodon, but it, I just truly love the fact that it's my time that I'm not actually I'm not earning money for Elon Musk. I'm not earning money for Mark Zuckerberg, I'm not earning money for anybody. Mm. You know, if I if I want to waste my time or spend time on Mastodon, like that's it. It's like full stop. You know, I'm not like, yeah, I'm not harming anybody. I'm not giving anybody any money. I'm not being surveilled. My data is not being tracked or like taken or sold. It's a really, really different experience. No, absolutely. I think I think the the degree to which I, I kind of mentioned that panopticon thing of you know you're sort of never sure when when somebody's looking at you. It's it's that kind of feel, and it's it's a very un- discomforting sense. And I think you're right that we can't ignore these these kinds of media. I mean, I think for someone like yourself working in journalism that would probably be career ending to to uh <laughs> to ignore the internet and i think you know the same is true for activists for the left in general for socialist groups um, yeah. engaging with the world as it is is absolutely key and i think that's that's something your book actually does sort of raise uh in the course of it this this whole notion of I think I mentioned it before, sort of walking a line between moralism and understanding. And I think that's a difficult line that not just a Marxist journalist or a journalist in general needs to to draw, you know, between that desire to to make judgments and comprehend the world as it is. But it is this kind of cognitively difficult one to maintain sometimes, like not understanding, you know, understanding, for example, that at least at the level of motivations, the capitalist class aren't demonic. They're not. They're not fueled by some evil, malign desire to destroy the world around them. You know, they they are often a ruthless. You know, in engaging a ruthless um, a process of exploiting people, but with their own kinds of uh, judgments bound up. And that kind of idea of communicative capitalism the idea that it comes with this idea of how we engage with the world and how the world engages back with us that reminds me a lot of uh, marx's notion of of sort of sensuous materialism by which he meant that kind of everyday experience of life and the way that that informs our values and and makes us who we are with agency but within those parameters so i'd be really interested in sort of hearing your experiences as a journalist as a journalist of the fashion industry about sort of any particular challenges you have in terms of that you know being able to draw that line between judgments and and analysis and I think it can get very complicated when it comes to sort of modeling ideas of of how we should be in the world and I think that's permanent challenge for anybody of the left who who wants to sort of not get into judgmentalism and at least become the least popular person (laughs) around Yeah, well, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I definitely am the least popular person around. Like, like you, you know, no, like I think people think I'm a lot more judgmental than I am. Like, no one wants to go shopping with me anymore. For example, um, no one wants to tell me when they've bought like anything new or any like. But I mean, look, I think I think fashion, the fashion industry, is very useful. Like in this sense, I think. You know, you've got the sort of basics in that, like every piece of every piece of clothing, every piece of footwear is is like to, is a story. Like it is telling you a story. If you are open to to listening and to seeing it, you know, just looking at the clothing label and seeing that, like you know, made made in Bangladesh or made you know made in Myanmar, 
at the moment or you know or made from polyester you know so made from like a fossil fuel and and so on so every you know every piece of clothing is telling a story every piece of clothing is telling a story about a bigger political system and a bigger economic system uh so i i think it's really useful in, in that sense also like both it's a very very stark industry i think both the exploitation is extremely stark. I mean, this is like Victorian stuff. This is why Mar like Marx and Engels fits so well. Uh, and, you know, and Engels' work, you know, in particular, like it's just into like the mills of Manchester. It resonates mm -hmm. like this hasn't gone away. This is like black and white. Uh, we're still de dealing with the same old crap in, in the mills and the factories and stuff. So, you know, both the exploitation is incredibly stark and the case for change, I think, for me, is like is extraordinarily stark. Like it's such an unfair industry. Um, you know, where you where you literally have some of the richest individuals on the planet at the top of this industry and some of the biggest, most powerful corporations at the top. And then down at the bottom, you know, you have some of the poorest, most exploited people uh, in, in the world. And those, you know, and th those people are so linked because mm -hmm. the people at the bottom are literally making the things that have made those those people so incredibly powerful uh, and and rich. It's just like whenever any, you know, anyone says, oh, there's no money for change. Like, oh, there's no money to make the factory safer or there's no money for like environmental work. It's just like, let's be real here. And then going back to what we were talking about at the start of this, like fashion is the thing, one of the major things that makes me want to change the world, like both in terms of how bad it is, but also in terms of how good it could be how it like how exciting it could be as as a, as an art form uh if it were freed from commerce and and competition uh if we actually allowed like clothing to thrive uh, as as an art form uh, and a democratic art form and you know one that celebrated individuality and celebrated difference uh, and was gen genuinely creative i think it i think it could be a real like asset and point of pride for like for for humanity by now for me it's fairly intuitive like it's a very human focused industry like I feel like I'm quite human focused you know people mm. stories about people uh, it's a very labor intensive industry the very women you know very gendered intensive like intensively gendered industry so you know these are all things I'm I'm really interested in it's also to be honest with you, it's also a really inspiring industry. The trade unions, you know, the right. like the, the TTCU union, the Tamil Nadu uh, Textile and Common Labour Union in in um, in, Ta in India in Tamil Nadu, they like extraordinary the work they do, and you know, and it's like that's like a Dalit-led, women-led union. Uh, going up against every single sort of structural barrier that you know that is possible like to face sexism classism casteism racism sexual exploitation and violence um and you know and 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 as well as factory exploitation you know and and they're out there organizing uh they're winning battles um you know they're like they're getting you know, they're getting workers organized so yeah so for me like it, it it's really it's it's a really inspiring industry as well and I think it's easy if people are interested if people want to do this kind of work like it's quite easy to become very active 
on the side of garment workers unions at the moment like there's there's a lot of work to be done there's a lot of solidarity work to be done but it's yeah it's there like the struggles are very alive they're happening I guess one thing if it's all right like I'd like to mention is that this April the 23rd of April is the 10-year anniversary of the Rana Plaza factory collapse where 1,138 people were killed and another 2,500 people were injured. So I'm working with uh, like a little coalition of like groups in, in the UK uh, and we're organising a programme uh, of events in April which are going to commemorate the lives lost and, you know, highlight uh, like the injustices that are still taking place with garment workers. It'd be great. Like we're going to, we'll be going to Oxford Circus. We'll be doing like a political walking tour around some of the brands that were involved in that. Uh, we'll be doing events in Tower Hamlets as well, like to like, you know, namings of the dead um, and like solidarity actions. And yeah, all all, all kind of organised with uh, unions in Bangladesh as well. So yeah, there is, there's tons, there's tons of stuff if people want to get involved. What you raised there is really two things returning to, I think, what's become a sort of motif in, in this podcast of that utopian dream. In, in certain ways, your perspective here uh, on what fashion could be reminds me a little bit of the sort of anti-art movements in terms of democratizing art, in terms of democratizing aesthetic production and destroying the boundaries between aspects of everyday life and, and what it means to create fashion, what it means to wear fashion to such an extent that it fundamentally changes our concept of what fashion is. And, and there's that vision, which is, I think, an incredibly positive and, and humanist vision of, of what future world we could create. And then on the other hand, there's the, the simpler sort of immediate joy of solidarity, which I think is the you know the the point to raise against perhaps those who who don't find uh marxists very uh <laughs> who find us a little annoying when, when we're, we're talking about the way that the world actually works endlessly chasing cons cons uh products of uh, you know the, these sort of consumer products that are advertised to to sort of the, the worst part of who you are the, the sort of neediest part, the, the part that, that desires recognition from, you know, all the wrong uh, sources and places, set against the, the joy of actually standing in solidarity with the exploited and thereby feeling your own agency to affect and change the world, which I think is you know, much closer to, to who we are as human beings. It is a joyful thing. I mean, it's that's where there is meaning in life. I, I mean, one one thing that has been, yeah, has been wonderful, is, and you know, going back to the internet, is the ability for like instant communication. Um, in the pandemic, at one point, there was an online rally that the TTCU union like hosted, and that was that was remarkable, and and like the the sense of solidarity was incredible and it's not like it's not a one-way street it's not it's not like oh we you know we in the global north are supporting you know you in the global south it's like uh, for me it's like the the inspiration kind of like comes the other way learning to be done and 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 so much inspiration to to be gained things are on the up here but definitely there's there's a lot that the british unions and certainly the american unions can 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 learn from from different struggles definitely 
You mentioned the struggles in, in India that have been just incredible to sort of watch from afar. And that sense of international solidarity with, with people facing that kind of extreme situation, but also just the, the sense of what is possible uh, in terms of changing the world. So I, I will end by advising every single person to pick up a copy of the Anti-Capitalist Book of Fashion because it's fantastic and is full of a lot more than, than we've been able to discuss. There's, there's so many details and there's so much really rich and enriching analysis in, in this wonderful book. And ACL will be sure to put up a, a review of it on the, on the blog as well. And, and I was wondering if you have any sort of concluding thoughts there is, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of work to be done in the garment industry, a lot of struggles on a lot of different fronts. Like if people are, you know, interested in get like getting involved to the extent of coming along to one or two events, that would be wonderful. Or, you know, or, or diving in the deep end and, and getting like fully involved, like that would be that'd be wonderful. And and certainly, you know, if people want to show their solidarity uh, in April with with Bangladesh and with the Rana Plaza solidarity campaign, that would be that would be superb. Would you also like to let listeners know where to sort of find your work or your social Ooh, media yeah. accounts sometimes oh, to yeah. give them better? <laughs> we've been sort of bad mouthing social media (laughs) well so i am so i have a website i have a a ghost website so open source non-profit website Hmm. hoster so that's tansyhoskins.org and i've got a free newsletter uh, and i'm actually yeah i'm going to be doing a newsletter next month uh no sorry next week i'm going to be doing a newsletter um I, i am on mastodon um Tansy at Wandering Shop. I moved instances, so I'm now at Wandering Shop. Uh, I'm on. I am on Twitter. I'm not really using it very much at the moment, but at Tansy Hoskins and Facebook, uh, Tansy Hoskins author page as well. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments or ideas, we would love to hear from you. Write to us at acrradio at anticapitalistresistance.org. That's A-C-R-A-D-I-O at anticapitalistresistance.org. And remember to subscribe on your favourite podcast platforms.